And we're going to begin in Luke chapter 19. Today we're going, to, we're going to see something from a perspective that might be a little surprising. Sometimes people surprise you, and it's not always in a good way. Uh, we're going to get some mixed messages from the people of Israel over the, the course of the next few months as we study through Luke. In just a few days from what we're reading today, Jesus Christ will be hanging almost naked, bloody, battered, before the nation of Israel, and they're going to be shouting at him and cursing him until he dies. But today, as he enters into David's holy city, a completely different attitude seems to envelop the nation of Israel. There's a great irony here, a great disconnect, a contrast of reactions from the day that Jesus walks into God's holy city of Jerusalem to the day he draws his final breath there. So we're going to be learning together as we look in Luke chapter 19. We're going to start with verse 28, and we're going to study this important passage of Scripture together that is often referred to as the triumphal entry. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. What things did he say? He had just shared the parable of the minas, which we studied last week. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So we're going to continue. We're going to do a lot more verses than what we just read today, but we're going to work at it a chunk at a time. So by the time we get to the last part, we're not already forgetting what we read before, all right? After Jesus finished telling the parable of the minas that we studied last week, he he goes on ahead. He continues the progress that has been a consistent marker of his ministry as he's been working through the villages of Judea southward toward Jerusalem. Verse 28 tells us that he drew near to Bethany and Bethphage. These are two small communities on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They were minor villages, that served the same purpose as kind of our modern-day suburbs do. Jerusalem was a great city, a heavily populated, but so many people wanted to be in Jerusalem, not everyone could live directly in the city, and so small communities sprouted up around Jerusalem so that folks could be in close proximity to all the things that were going on there. Remember that Jericho was about 15 or 20 miles to the east of Jerusalem, about one day's walk. So as Jesus completes that final leg of his journey, he's traveling westbound, and gradually ascending what is known as the Mount of Olives, upon which the city of David is built at a high altitude. Bethany is likely familiar to us, and it was definitely familiar to Jesus. It's the place where his good friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And Jesus was actually just recently in Bethany. The other Gospels tell us that that is where he came to raise Lazarus from the dead, which was one of his his greatest miracles and happened really close to the time that we're studying here, the time of the Passover just before his crucifixion. Luke's narrative sometimes makes it sound like Jesus walked in a straight line from Galilee through each little city along the way and then got to Jerusalem. He sets it up like that to show you the progression, to always keep Jerusalem in your mind. But there was actually a lot of back and forth in Jesus' ministry in Judea, a lot of bouncing around, and he actually came into and went out of Jerusalem several times during that period as well. But Luke chooses to make Jerusalem the highlight, and so he doesn't really speak of his previous ministries in Jerusalem. He's really only going to finish uh, focus on this ministry that he did during the week of the Passover leading up to his death 
his burial, and his resurrection. So while in Bethany, Jesus pauses and he sends two of his disciples off into a a nearby community to complete an interesting task. It must have been interesting to be a disciple and to have Jesus just ask you to do something completely random. And to you, it doesn't seem to fit into what's going on, but you just know Jesus always has a purpose for it. He's always got a plan for it. He needs these two disciples, we don't know which two they were, to collect a young animal, a colt of a donkey. Now, this isn't a baby donkey. It's a young juvenile donkey, one that is just about ready to be put to good use. Um, So there are a very couple of interesting details we want to note about this donkey and about this task that Jesus puts these men to. First of all, the donkey didn't belong to Jesus. It wasn't his donkey. Um, Jesus and his disciples traveled from town to town. They were usually on foot, and they had very little in the way of personal possessions. When Jesus, a few chapters back, had sent out his disciples two by two on mission. Remember, he had instructed them very specifically, don't even take a spare tunic with you. Don't take a staff or a money bag. He sent them out very lightly equipped. They were to trust in the Lord God and depend on the hospitality of other Jewish people and the communities they went into. And so they were very commonly used to traveling lightly. However, it's important for Jesus to enter this particular city, the city of David, on an animal. And we're going to see why in just a moment. So he had to secure the use of such a beast from someone else. Now it's possible, and some scholars argue this is the case, that Jesus had made earlier arrangements with the owner of this little colt of a donkey to make use of it when the time was right. But that's not really the sense that we get as we read this passage the way that Luke presents it to us. Jesus prepares his two disciples to go and find the animal. And it seems like his access to it is some kind of divine arrangement. Like this was set up by powers beyond this world, like God himself, so that when the time was right, things would fall into place exactly how they were supposed to. Jesus knows that the colt's going to be tied up to a specific place, and he knows that its owner will not be expecting two strangers to simply walk up and take the animal. He also knows that by simply saying kind of a password, if you will, the Lord has need of it, that the owners of the colt will not keep the two disciples from taking it away. They're not going to stop them. Perhaps God had visited these owners in a dream. Or maybe he had given them some special revelation by an angel that the animal would be required for some kind of an important task. Or maybe the owners were simply just good stewards of the things that God had given. And as soon as they heard that God had need of the thing that they considered theirs, they would realize, you know, that's not mine anyway. It belongs to the Lord. So if the Lord needs it, go ahead and take it. The Gospel of Mark adds the detail that after it was used, the disciples intended to bring it right back. So it wasn't like a give it to us kind of thing. It was we just need this for a time and for a task. Secondly, we find that Jesus needed the animal in order to fulfill prophecy that was written about him. The nation of Israel in general, and specifically the 12 disciples who are following after Jesus, we've seen plenty of examples of this, have already given us evidence that they don't know a lot about the prophecies that pointed to Messiah. They are woefully undereducated in the scriptures God had given his people to point them towards the one to come. Now, there were exceptions to that rule. We know that Simeon, uh, when he saw the birth of Messiah, he was pretty well versed in these scriptures. We know that John the Baptist was very aware of these messianic prophecies. But by and large, the nation of Israel was kind of dull to them. They had not realized how many of the scriptures were pointing forward to the coming of this king that God had arranged for his people. 
Jesus, however, was acutely aware of these things. He knew everything that needed to be fulfilled in his own life in order to prove that he was not just some guy claiming to be Messiah, not just a man who wanted attention or wanted the support of the people. He was truly the one that was sent by God. One such messianic prophecy is found in the writings of Zechariah chapter 9. And it alluded to Genesis 4, 9 as well, 49, verse 9, which we're not going to get to today. But Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It's referring to the people of Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in that small verse that's tucked away in Zechariah chapter 9, we get a clear indication that the one that God is going to send to redeem the nation of Israel, to fulfill the promises made to David about his family line ruling forever, he would come and present himself on the foal of a donkey. It's kind of a strange little detail. And so Jesus understood perfectly that to be the Messiah that God had called him to be, he needed to walk out these prophetic utterances with his very own life. He would come to God's holy city and he would come the way Scripture told the people that he would come. So while it might seem like a small detail, Jesus was determined in no way to fall short of things that had been written about him. So Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem riding on a young donkey had some significant symbolic meaning to it as well. The third thing we notice about this arrangement is the donkey had to be a beast of burden that no one had ever ridden on before. And there is some some significance to that. This colt is unbroken. He has not been trained. Others have not used him for work. So he's not a worn-out donkey. He's not a donkey with injuries. He's been set apart for a specific use. And ancient tradition states that no one may sit on a king's throne except the king. No one may wield the scepter of a king except the king. No one can ride on the horse of a king except a king. It might remind you a little bit of a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 6, specifically verse 7. Israel had lost the Ark of the Covenant through pride and and a failure to seek the Lord God out and listen specifically to his instructions. They had carried the Ark of the Covenant into battle thinking that like a good luck charm, God would no way let them lose or else his Ark would be in danger. God didn't want them to think in those terms about his Ark as if it was some trinket that they could use to manipulate God himself. So he allowed them to be defeated. And he allowed the Philistines to capture that ark and to take it away. And so for a time, that ark was lost and the nation of Israel mourned deeply because they had failed God in a major way and they were being punished for it. God had his own plans. That's an amazing section of scripture. If you've never read through 1 Samuel 6 and 7, go and read it this week. It's just an encouraging thing to watch how even when we are disobedient to God, we miss out on the blessings of being connected to his mission but he doesn't fail the mission just because we are disobedient. That Ark of the Covenant goes into the Philistines' land, they put it in their cities, and then wherever it goes, it plagues the people of the Philistines. 
They start to grow tumors. They start to get infested by rats. Everything starts going wrong. And so the people in this area say, well, we don't want that ark here anymore. And they send it away to somewhere else. And then guess what? That place gets devastated by tumors and by punishment. And they say, we don't want it here. Go send it to that part of the Philistine. And they send it over there. And one by one, the cities of Philistine are wreaked havoc on, not by the armies of God, but by the presence of God himself. Eventually, the Philistines have had enough. And they say, we've got to get rid of this thing. There, there is evidence here that there are powers greater than we understand working in this ark. We need to send it back to where it came. And so what do they do? They prepare a cart, and they hook that cart up to two specific animals. Listen to 1 Samuel 6, verses 7 through 9. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side. The figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. So they wanted to deliver this ark, but they didn't want to just walk into Israel with the ark or they'd be slain down by the Israelite soldiers who would have been angry that they stole it in the first place. So they hook it up to Two cows who had never been yoked for work before. So this is just showing you the mindset of the people of that area that if anything was going to be used for kingly purposes, it needed to be untouched by work prior to that. It needed to be pure and set apart. It needed to be set apart for holy work. Um, that This particular king is riding on a donkey was, spe- was specifically important as well. Most kings would ride on What? Not a donkey, right. Most kings would ride on a mighty war horse, on something grand and powerful that reflected the, the speed and the might and the efficiency of the king that rode upon it. It was almost like today when you see people spending all this money on fancy, nice, fast cars because they think that's going to convince the world that they are competent and powerful and strong. Well, that same mindset is apparent in, in the Semitic cultures of the Far East and the Middle East. And so we see that happening here with the kings. The kings always wanted to ride on mighty steeds and and noble mounts, but this of peace. The people were expecting what? They were expecting a man of war. They were expecting a second David, one who could come in and lay to waste the enemies of God through power and might and through the sword. And yet Jesus' power was going to be displayed in much more lasting ways. The disciples, having received instructions from Jesus, did exactly what they were told to do. And we continue to read in chapter 19 of Luke, beginning in verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. They went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks upon the road. So just as Jesus had said it would come to pass, it happened to the smallest detail. The owners are initially weary of the strangers untying their colt, but when they hear it is needed to fulfill God's plan, they comply completely, just as Jesus had known they would. You see, this is, this is here showing us 
the divine knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is not some prearranged thing. We are supposed to be impressed here by what Jesus knows that no one else could know. By the way, I don't encourage you to uh, go up to your friend later on when they're having breakfast and pull a donut off their plate. And they say, hey, that's my donut. What are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it. (laughs) Take a bite, okay? It works for Jesus. It's not going to work for you, all right? This is not just somebody saying, well, just take it, I guess. This was the Lord working in the hearts of his people to provide for the needs of the mission. In all seriousness, though, this is evidence that Jesus is God in the flesh, that we're dealing with more than a man here. We're dealing with Emmanuel himself. He knows the will of God the Father. It is the same will as his own. It is the same will as the Spirit. And because this is the will of God, God can make it sovereignly come to pass. And that's exactly what he does. They need a cult, they get a cult. In the final chapters of Luke, Jesus is going to display his divine foreknowledge to us on several occasions. We're going to begin to see more and more evidence that he's not just a man. That even though he has humbled himself and taken on the form of man, he is still, in every way, shape, or form, Divine, eternal God. The destruction of Jerusalem is predicted by this Jesus in chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. It is predicted in such detail, and it won't happen until 70 AD, but it's predicted in such detail that secular scholars who cannot leave room for a divine God in the way they view history insist that these verses of Scripture must have been added into Luke's Gospel after the fact. They swear up and down there's no way those things could have been written before 70 AD because they are too accurate in their prediction of the things that would come. Peter and John directed to prepare the Passover. Right before they go up into that upper room, Jesus gives them some really interesting little details showing that he knew exactly where people were going to be and what things were going to be going on. He says, behold, when you enter into the city, you're going to see a man carrying a jug of water. When you see that man carrying a jug of water, follow him and enter into the house where he goes, and then ask for the master of the house and tell him that the teacher needs the room to prepare the Passover for his disciples. Now, do you think that man just walked around all day with the jug, just waiting for the disciples to find him and follow him into the house? No, this is Jesus looking into the future because he is not bound by time the way that we are. His knowledge is so spectacular that he sees it all in one clear picture. He knows exactly where that man's going to be, and he knows that his own two men are going to walk in right when that guy is walking by. This is the God we serve today, folks. This is the God we worship. He's not just the best of us. He's not just a really good man. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, and he changed all of human history. We're going to see in chapter 22 that as Jesus sits down to have that Passover meal with his fellow brothers, his disciples, He's going to predict that Judas, one of his own, will betray him. And hours later, that very thing will come to pass. He knew it. And yet he still broke bread with that man and prayed over him. Peter's triple denial and fallout was foreseen by Jesus well before it happened in chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. The daughters of Jerusalem are forewarned about some coming woes in chapter 23 as Jesus peers far into the future at his return. So Jesus is going to show us again and again and again that he is divine, that he has a knowledge that surpasses your understanding or mine. Those who try to deny Jesus might argue, well, you know what? Many prophets 
were given divine foreknowledge, but they're not all God. They're not God in the flesh. Why is Jesus different than any prophet? I would encourage you to notice the way that Jesus goes about these prophecies. It's not like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who is given a word of the Lord. They come before the people and they say, Thus saith the Lord. They were very important formulas that they needed, needed to declare in order to identify what they were about to say with the, with the words of their mighty God that sent them. Jesus doesn't do that because they are his words as well as the Father's. He uses this power almost casually because it is familiar to him. It is his own power. It is not a power that has been bestowed upon him. It is intrinsic in his being. He is omniscient. He knows all things. Jesus has shown us that he is authentically human, to be sure. He has hungered. You remember in the other Gospels where it says he hungered and he came up to the fig tree and it was supposed to be in bloom and there was no figs on it and he cursed it. He was hungry and wanted to eat. There are times when he's thirsty. When he, when he saddles up to that well in Samaria next to the, the woman at the well, he needs some water because he's dehydrated. He's, he's parched. Like you and I would be parched. He needs rest. He was so tired at one point he's sleeping through a storm that threatens to sink a boat and he's fast asleep. You've probably slept like that from time to time. Youth workers, after a lock-in. I know how it feels. He's endured temptation, hasn't he? Went through the wilderness. Battled the urging of Satan to do things that he knows God the Father does not want him to do. He is authentically and truly man. And yet here in the last chapters of Luke, we will see him show again and again that while he is truly man, he is at the very same time God in the flesh. By humbling himself and coming as a man, Jesus did not trade his divine nature. He added the human nature to his divinity. It did not corrupt his divine nature. It did not displace it. God is what we cannot be. God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is what we cannot be. He is God in the flesh, a true man and truly God. Feel free to wonder at this God. Feel free to see him as holy and different because he is not like you or I. How do the actions of the crowd bear significant? As he comes into this city and as they bring this cult by him, as he requested, what do the people do? They react to seeing Jesus by treating him like a king, by treating him like someone with authority, by treating him like a royal. In verse 35, Jesus is placed on the colt. That's a detail that Luke reveals to us that the other Gospels fail to include. He didn't just get up on the colt himself. His people say, come on, get up on this colt. We want you to come in as a procession. We want to honor you as you enter into the borders of David's special city. The pilgrims used their own cloaks as a sort of saddle for this this cold. Remember, it's not broken yet, so it doesn't know how to wear a saddle. It's not used to that. So they can't just throw a saddle on it. Anybody who knows working with equestrian animals, you can't just throw a saddle on something and expect to ride it. That's not how it works. So they throw some cloaks on the back of this animal, and Jesus is placed carefully upon him. And then the pilgrims spread their own cloaks out on the ground. Don't forget, many of the people who are involved with this procession are not native of Jerusalem. The Passover is about to happen. And so there's a, a mass of people coming from all over the empire 
to enter into the city of David in preparation for this Passover. So many of these people on the road are travelers like him. They might be wearing their only coat. And they take it off and put it on the road. Why do they do that? It's a sign of humble submission to one in authority. Whatever you need, king, I am your servant. I am your charge. I will give it to you because I recognize that you rule me. And so these people are outwardly showing signs of submission to Jesus and acknowledgement of his rule in their lives. The other Gospels, John specifically is the most detailed about it, tell us that some of these travelers and some of the natives of Jerusalem ran and they quickly cut fronds off of the palm trees. And these fronds were also laid on the ground so that as this little colt was to walk through with Jesus upon its back, it would not have to walk upon the dirt, but would walk upon almost like a red carpet treatment for a king. These all indicate that there was at the very least an excited hopefulness that perhaps Jesus really was the king of kings, the one that God had ordained to sit on David's throne. Maybe God really was bringing the prophecies of Messiah to life before their very eyes. So there's some enthusiasm here. Luke 19 goes on to say in verse 37, As, we draw, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, crying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. We call this the triumphal entry because it evokes the return of the nobleman to his city in the parable we just studied. Do you see the connection here? We studied this parable just last week about a nobleman who went away to receive a kingdom and then came back. And here we see a parallel between that as this man is being associated with nobility, being associated with rule and with a kingdom. And so this is the triumphal entry that a king would have as he came in to take, stake claim upon the kingdom that was rightfully his. There are thousands of Jewish pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem at that time to partake in the Holy Day festivals there. So these Jews, many of whom were not residents of Jerusalem, most of whom had surely heard of Jesus and his ministry, respond to Jesus in the city in a very vocal way. Not just by deeds, but also by the things they say. What the people did was important, so too were their words. Joyful shouts of praise are lifted up by the people and the masses. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of who? The Lord. He is representative of the mighty sovereign hand of Yahweh, their God. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All this is pointing toward the mighty hand of God making these things come to pass. And the other uh, accounts of this coming of Jesus into the city of David, the book of Matthew, says, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. You know what the word Hosanna means? It means God save us. It is an appeal to the mighty power of God. They are looking to this man to be the one who's going to come and set them free from the yoke of Rome. And then the book of Mark, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, connection with the Davidic promises, the covenants that were struck with David by God. The crowd is saying things that indicate they believe that Jesus is Messiah, aren't they? But not everyone is rejoicing on this day. Jesus, as we're going to see here, continues to face resistance from a certain aspect of the nation of Israel. 
Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The outcry, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, is the last significant peep we hear from the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke. From this point forward, the resistance to Jesus is going to shift to the people who are more central to Jerusalem, the high priest, the Sadducees, Council of the Seven. But the Pharisees, one last resistance to Christ is recorded here in Luke's Gospel. They implore him to tell his disciples to shut their mouths. They are very vocal about keeping Jesus from doing what, is doing what he is doing right now. What makes the Pharisees so upset? Why are they so angry with this procession, which seems to be a source of great joy for the people of whom they are supposed to be a part? Well, first of all, it's very likely that they feel Jesus is receiving too much personal glory in this moment. That he's putting too much emphasis on himself and not enough on God. If you give them the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, you know, they're, they're being cautious. This is God's Passover that we're about to celebrate. Why is this prophet bringing attention to himself? I can imagine if somebody stood up here and, and wanted to be exalted and, and, and given great glory, then I would question that. I would want to know why it was happening because this service is for the glory of God. It is for his exaltation and his honor. And we sang just a few moments ago, that he will not share his throne with anyone, will he? There is one God only. And so perhaps these Pharisees are, are worried that Jesus' growing uh, acceptance, that the people's excitement about him is going to pull the attention away from God and put it on a man instead. They were no doubt concerned that Jesus was detracting from the Passover emphasis that was going on in Jerusalem. This was a big week for the Jews. They had a lot of things scheduled, a lot of things that were supposed to be done in an orderly and reverent fashion. And this threatened to stir things up. And so the Pharisees are imploring Jesus, quiet your disciples down. You're making a scene here. This is the Passover. We're supposed to have meditative hearts and everyone here is shouting hosannas. For reasons of personal preservation, it's very likely these Pharisees also wanted to shut up the disciples of Jesus because they're making kingly claims here. And who's not going to want to hear that the king of Jews is in town? The Romans. The Pharisees definitely do not want to incite the wrath of the Roman army by hearing there's some kind of an uprising going on where the Jews might possibly be anointing a king and trying to break free from Rome. So these Pharisees have reasons to be upset about what's going on, but Jesus assures them that there is nothing they can do to stop what is happening in that moment. Those people were uttering those words, Hosanna in the highest. That cult was doing his duty of carrying in the Messiah as part of the divine hand of God making his will become manifest in the world. I tell you, if these, my disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. What a powerful thing to say in response to these Pharisees. It means that if man were to utterly fail in praising God, God would not go unpraised. God's creation will praise him in some way, shape, or form. God could cause some other part of what he has made to do what we were designed to do. But because of great love, he wants us to do it. He has set us apart for that specifically. 
And so it doesn't please God to have the rocks cry out in this way. His people are supposed to cry out for him. If you read through Scripture, and this is something you might not pick up if you only get a little bit of word here and a little bit of word there, but if you're reading through the Scripture pretty regularly, you might notice and pick up on a theme of rocks testifying to the Lord. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11, the people of Israel were overlooking the poor and the rich ones were establishing wealth and luxury for themselves while many of their brothers and sisters in Israel were suffering. And the prophet Habakkuk speaks out against this. He says, For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Speaking of their fancy houses that they have made while their brothers are in the streets. He says, The very things that you are gathering up to yourself, if you don't listen to the Lord God, are going to cry out against you. In Joshua 4, you might remember, when the nation of Israel was crossing the Jordan River, God miraculously parts the waters for them, uh, just as he had done to the Red Sea. They walk across that riverbed that was dry on foot, and as they're going, they pick up 12 smooth, heavy stones with which they build uh, uh, an altar to the Lord, not with hewn stones, because that was against the law of Leviticus, but with unhewn stones, they made a mound. And they said, this mound is going to testify to the things that I do for you today. When your children and your children's children are playing around and they run up and they say, Papa, where did these big stones come from? And why is there this giant mound here? It's been here ever since we've lived here. Then you could say to them, that mound reminds us, it speaks to the sovereignty of our God, that he wanted us in this land and he made it possible for us and untrained people who are not a people of war, but a group of ex-slaves to come in and defeat the people of Canaan and take this holy land to be our own. Those stones were going to be a testimony to what God had done. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, you might recall John the Baptist's sermon as he's preaching powerfully to these people about the Messiah to come. He's making straight the way. He says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say for yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't just fall back on your heritage and fold your hands and do nothing because you think just because you have Jewish blood, you're safe. He says, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And then later on, you're going to read in 1 Peter chapter, four, or chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 where Peter is talking to the churches of Asia Minor and he's describing how God sees them. And he says, As you come to him, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He's calling him the cornerstone, the centerpiece of a whole building that ties it all together and gives it its strength. And then in verse 5 he says, And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus could have caused these lifeless, dumb, inanimate stones to cry out if he desired. He could say a word and they would sing his praises. But that's not what God intends to do. God wants to use men and women, maybe men and women like you, to sing his praises and to show this world that he is worthy of glory and honor and praise. If we did not know the end of this story and we saw these multitudes praising and putting their coats down and running to gather fronds and putting them on the ground, if we didn't know the end of the story, we might believe that these Jewish people were beginning to come around and realize that Jesus was really Messiah. 
and was worthy of their praise, worthy of their faith, worthy of their allegiance. And I don't doubt that there were some among that group that truly believed and truly honored Jesus that day. But Jesus saw much more than we see. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave a stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation it almost seems like the Jews are throwing Jesus a party. Like they are honoring him and applauding him as the one that God has sent. And yet Jesus sees right through the external. He sees right through the superficial pageantry of this triumphal entry and sees the broken heart of the people that they are not quite broken enough to surrender themselves to this king that many in this nation of people that call themselves His chosen are not going to truly believe and give their lives to Him. And He weeps. He sees everything, not for what it appears to be, but for what it is. Jesus could not fully share in their jubilation, though they are crying Hosanna to Him, because He understood that their rejoicing was superficial. It was without a true faith in Christ. His coming will mean judgment rather than salvation for so many of them. And friends, we might, as a church, humbly step back and ask ourselves, wow, how easy is man deceived into thinking that he is doing the right thing when in reality, actions don't necessarily reflect the true status of one's heart. When we do things to honor the Lord God, when we do holy Christian things, do we do it because first and foremost, we love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or we do it because this is what we do? Do we do it because we have a religion and we follow it religiously? Or do we do it because God is truly our king? Because if God is truly our king, it's going to cost us more than our cloak getting dirty on the ground. It's going to cost us more than a little cult. It's going to cost us our everything. It's going to mean letting him have the keys to our kingdom, saying, God, come and use me for whatever designs you have. Even if it leads to my destruction, I am yours. Unfortunately, he cannot freely assume the best of this crowd that has welcomed him into David's city with enthusiasm. He weeps for them because he knows the superficiality of their embrace. He knew that the colt was going to be there. He also knows the heart of his people. He knew that the man would walk by with the jug. He also knows which one of these will believe and which one will not. Friends, God can raise up worshipers of any of his creation, but he desires human beings who are made in his image to be the ones that give him glory and honor and praise. And it's not just a simple song. It is the posture of a broken and contrite heart that sees its deep and desperate need for Jesus Christ as Savior. And so he weeps because his heart is broken. Though he is sovereign, we must pay close attention to this detail. I don't want to overlook this. He takes no pleasure in their destruction. 
Whatever your stance on predestination and free will, however you are interpreting election, I want you to see the broken heart of your God who does not take any joy in the destruction of the wicked yet is so committed to justice and what is right that he cannot bear to let the wicked persist forever. He must punish them. And so he weeps over his people. So if Jesus sees through this celebration, if he is weeping over Israel's unbelief, what makes this entry so triumphal? What makes this such a triumphant entry into the, king, the king's country, into his holy city? Why is this such a wonderful thing? Well, it is a wonderful thing, and we can still look at it as a triumph. Because first and foremost, it is the fulfillment of great and perfect promises that God made. It is a part of the prophetic record which one by one Jesus fulfilled with his actions, with his miracles, with his words, with his deeds. Jesus is keeping his promise of Scripture and it is a triumph of truth. Whether man resists him or not, God's going to do what he's going to do. Whether we praise him or not, God's will is going to unfold in his universe. Whether we deny him or receive him, his will will be done. His promise keeping is no way contingent on how man receives him. And so Jesus is able to endure this with a sense of gravity, with a grounded heart. I know that myself as a man, if, if I had the multitudes praising and coming to me and saying, ah, you're the king, God is going to do great things through you, it would affect me. I would have to check my heart. I'd have to watch my pride. But Jesus is... He sees through everything. And so he does not let himself get swept away with the positivity of this crowd. He does not let himself think, well, maybe I won't have to die. Maybe I'll just raise up this army and defeat Rome and establish this earthly kingdom. He knows what he's there for and he will not be shaken. And so even the small detail of this little cult being borrowed for a moment and these people taking off their coats, all of this is the fulfillment of Scripture, is the truth of Christ's promises through Yahweh being made manifest in the world. And secondly, this, em this entrance into the, the holy city of David is a triumph for you if indeed Jesus is your king. <clears throat> there were many among that crowd there who praised Jesus that day and cried Hosanna to him, save us, but who did not have a true faith in their heart. But if today your heart truly trusts in Jesus as king, then you understand that though what Jesus is about to do is grisly and painful and bloody and difficult to read about, difficult to think about, it results in victory. First, for you, because it results in your sin being washed away. When we get to this scene where Jesus is finally put on trial, it's going to be so tough for us. There's going to be a hard few weeks where we have to read and really meditate on the pain that our Savior had to go through for us. I, I expect fully that it's going to make us feel bad about ourselves for a time. We're going to look at our lives and say, my sin made that necessary. His love for me made that necessary. And it's going to be hard to carry that. But as we see him willing to do it, you begin to see his light break through the darkness of the event. That even though it was ugly, even though it was in so many ways unjust, that the loving hand of God is working through these twisted events, these broken events, to make something wonderful happen. Jesus died though he had no business dying. He willingly gave of his own perfect and pure sinless life 
so that sinners like us who deserve exile, who deserve punishment forever, would be reconsidered in the eyes of God. That the blood of Jesus might pay for every sin debt that we had accumulated to the Lord God. And we would not have to stand before Him as enemies who could expect destruction, but we could stand before Him as forgiven sons. And that's tough for us to process because we know the depth of our sin. He knows it more. And still He loves you. So this can be a triumphant entry for you if you keep in mind that Jesus' death and burial is not the end of the story, but that he rises from that death victorious. That there is no power, may it be Rome or the Pharisees or the high priests, there is no authority that can compete with him and there is no one that can keep him dead. Our Savior lives today. He is risen. And if he is your king, you have nothing to fear. If your life is truly in his hands, then rejoice today in knowing that you've been set free from the chains of death even, that you will live forever in the presence of your God who has made you for so much more than your moment here on earth. Let us rejoice together in what the King has done. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you can't say with with much certainty that you've done that today, don't leave this place without coming and talking to me. Don't leave this place wondering if you're all right in the hands of God. Come and talk to myself. Talk to one of our elders. Talk to one of our other pastors on staff. Talk to the person who brought you if that's who you feel most comfortable with. We want you to know this Christ. We want you to know that he is really the son of God and that this whole world is beholden to his will. He is going to return one day soon. And when he does, there will be judgment. And we don't want anyone to experience that without having the loving salvation that can come only from Jesus Christ. Would you please bow your heads with me as we close? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the power of your word, which reminds us of how small we are, but how much you love us anyway. It reminds us of how grand you are, and yet you humbled yourself to come to be with us anyway. It reminds us of how deceived we often are, but how you see through all the deception and you know the truth. And you live out the will of God anyway. And so we praise you, Lord God, that we are here today asking and appealing to you that you would set right anything that is crooked in our minds, that you would help us to know you better, Lord God, that we would not be a people who wander, Lord. Put us on the path. Help us to walk where we're supposed to walk, Lord God. Give us the courage to trust you even when the path goes where we don't want to go when it goes away from the places that we know and are familiar with and takes us to new lands where we are afraid and where we don't know what to expect, Lord God, give us faith, strengthen us, and let us know that you're not going to bring us there without giving us what we need to get through it. You are so good, God. We're humbled to know you. We're humbled to have your name attached to us. We are Christians because of Christ. And so we pray, Lord God, that we represent you well in this world today, that we would enjoy you and we would glorify you with our everything. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.